0: Our scripture for today is uh, continuing in the, the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the book of Luke, and we're looking at the sixth chapter, the first seven verses in Acts 6. So let's stand up in honor of God's word as we contemplate this, this scripture. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the reading of his most precious word. You may have a seat, and let us come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we ask for your Spirit's presence as we continue to discern what it is that is your will for us, your good and pleasing and perfect will, help us to look to the example of your son to your word and to those faithful in that first church the first century church to be inspired by the legacy and the example that they set we ask this in Jesus name amen now in case you're you're new to PFC this whole sermon series is all about discernment and particularly how discernment was employed in that early church, in the first century church, as described for us in the the book of Acts. And, And today, we move into the sixth chapter, and we look at, we already have looked at, up until this point, a number of different types of discernment. And they're listed for you on the screen. You know, discerning the work of the Holy Spirit. Is what's happening, the Spirit moving? Discernment in prayer, discernment in healing in worship, in times of suffering, in teaching and in preaching, discerning whose laws to follow, whose commands to follow, and then discernment in possessing and giving. There was a whole lot of discernment going on in, that, in the early church. But as the infomercial says, but wait, there's more. <laughs> you know, this is an exhaustive list. Uh, We're going to continue to look at different types of discernment, and there are just as many as on the screen that we're going to be exploring in the, the weeks that lie before us. But, you know, it's no wonder that there was all kinds of discernment going on. After all, a lot of what the disciples were doing, it was new. It was the first time that it had ever been done. They were breaking new ground. There was no manual. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, and it was so necessary for them to be of one mind and all in one accord. And that description of the church in Acts is repeated again and again. That description also says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, in other words, sharing food together, and also fellowship which has a deeper meaning, that of a common purpose, a common mission, as it were. And they would were to continue in that common purpose and mission together, and also in communing with one another, to celebrating the, the bread and the cup and also the ministry of prayer. Last week, we spent six minutes in silence before the Lord, listening. That was a long time. Um, You know, I I bet it seemed longer than six minutes to most of us. And be honest, how many of you peeked? I mean, how many of you opened your eyes during that time to see what was going on? You You got some honest people here. All right, so I was in junior church. Now, when I miss a sermon, I listen to it on the podcast, and I have to admit, I thought I lost my Bluetooth signal. Well I was was listening to that. I mean that's a long time. Six minutes is a long time. But it was very obvious that God was speaking during that time, wasn't it? DJ asked, you know, what was God saying to you? And there were all kind there was all kinds of feedback that was given, which was awesome. I knew this chord was going to give me a problem. Um but but six minutes really, when you think about that in the context of our whole day, it's just a little blip. It's just a little blip. And yet, it seemed so long. You know, we don't often take even that minimal time to listen to God, to to be still and know, to wait, to truly wait upon the Lord. Instead, our world today is just pre-programmed for us, isn't it? It seems like everywhere we go, there is something that is assaulting our senses. And, and when it's not, we can pretty much tune into anything that we want with our smartphone or our other devices that we have. And we, we choose then to fill any remaining spaces that are left with something else. And what does that do? It just crowds God out. And less and less time and space is there for God. Last week, DJ mentioned that supernatural occurrences, miracles, occur and are more common in poorer countries than more affluent ones. And I've been thinking about that all week long. You know, why is that? Why is that the case? Does it have to do with need? Does it have to do with Our openness and our receptiveness, does it have to do with our our connection that we have with God, how receptive we are, or are we just tuned out? Is that the reason? You know, I think that we truly miss many miracles that occur right under our noses because we're just not looking for them. We're just not expecting them. We anticipate the usual, the normal, the status quo, what we've always seen. And even worse, when they do occur, we often pass them off as coincidences. Well, please start looking for them. Please start, you know, expecting them. Ask and you will receive. Jesus said, ask whatever you want in my name And this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. A simple example, just a very simple example. You know, take the uh, Scripture for this week. Back in July, DJ asked me if I was available to speak on either the 2nd or the 9th of September, and he included the Scriptures for both Sundays. And I didn't really look at the Scriptures, and I'll preach on anything. Not so much Revelation, but I'll preach on anything. (laughs) But I paid no attention to the, to the scriptures. And a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, I better start working on this message. So I looked at Acts 6, 1 to 7, and what did I discover? It's the same scripture that I preached on a year ago in July. So what was my first thought? No, come on. <laughs> that I could grab, they said that I could grab the sermon and use that from a year ago. No, that was not my first thought. <laughs> Seriously, my first thought was, wow, how about that? You know, what are the chances? And it wasn't so much that I wanted to calculate the, the probability of that Scripture reference aligning with the week that I picked. No, it was, you know, we didn't plan it that way. But there's somebody in charge who is planning it. And, and don't worry, I you know, I couldn't have used that same sermon anyway from 14 months ago. That was all about the office of deacon, and this is about discernment. It's, it's a different focus, different message. Uh, the book of Acts really speaks to us uh, about the first century church. And it's this church that was established following Jesus' ascension. It is the first church. And there are a lot of churches that put the word first in their name. You know, the first Baptist church. This morning we prayed for the first Church of the Brethren in Pottstown. But this was the first church that we have recorded for us in Acts. And it was perfect, right? Not quite. Hardly. There were all kinds of problems going on in that first church. And that was one of the reasons why they needed discernment. It was, in, it was critical, You know, last week and the week before, DJ talked about Ananias and Sapphira. It sounds like that we have recorded for us the very first hypocrites in the church. And can I just say that I am sick and tired of people who say they don't go to church because the church is filled with hypocrites. That is like saying, I don't go to the hospital because there are sick people there. Or, I'm not going to go to school because there are people there who still have to learn. Does that make sense? I mean, seriously. We come to church because we need help. We come to church because we're struggling. We're having a hard time living the example that Jesus gave to us. And at one time or another, each and every one of us has been a hypocrite all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, I heard a radio preacher uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was David Jeremiah, and he said, uh, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. Because as soon as you do, it will no longer be perfect. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) You know, all of us need these shared corporate worship experiences. We need to have what is described for us in Acts 2, that focus on teaching and fellowship and sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper and prayer. And granted, many people have had bad experiences in the church, unfortunately. People have been hurt, but we're all in this together. Uh, The church will always be filled with sinners. That includes hypocrites. But it always will be filled with sinners. Sinners who hopefully, hopefully are making attempt to walk closer and closer to the path that Jesus would have us walk. Okay, so uh, during these messages, DJ often encourages us to focus on the, uh, the, the five W's, the who, What, where, when, why? I can't say it as fast as he does, and sometimes how, right? Who, what, where, when, why? So let's take a look at those as we look at this passage of Scripture, Acts 6, 1 to 7. So who? Who's involved here? Well, we have two groups. We have the Hellenists, and we have the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the Jewish Christians, and the Hellenists were also Jewish Christians, but their mother tongue was Greek. So, they had come back from the diaspora, from one of the, the uh, captivities or whatever, and they were Greek-speaking Jews who became Christians. All right. So, that's who. Next, what? A complaint. There's a problem. All right? It's a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So, by the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians against the Jewish Christians. It sounds like it could be a language barrier, maybe, or it could be a cultural thing. We don't know. So We don't know what is causing the problem. Next, where is this taking place? Well, it's taking place in the first century church, which is in Jerusalem, and that's confirmed for us in verse 7 of our text for today. And then when did it take place? Well, the passage starts out now in these days. We don't really know specifically when it was. It was sometime after Pentecost, and it was during the time of the first century church. All right? And then why? Why was, this, why was there this complaint? Well, the Hellenists felt that their widows were being overlooked, in the daily distribution. Now, with our time-bound bias, we hear distribution, and we hear waiting or serving tables or waiting on tables in verse 2. And what do we think? We think food. Well, it could have been food, but the only problem with that is, how did people eat in those days? They didn't eat at tables. They reclined to eat, right? And usually when tables are mentioned, it has to do with money. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers, okay? So, there's a strong possibility that these tables were being used to distribute money to the widows. All right? That's what was happening. Uh, So, they needed people to man these tables to take care of this this, uh, responsibility. And we also remember that in this culture that widows… Uh, had no means of support. You know they were often destitute. They weren't permitted to work. So this brings us then to the how. And it was the how was this complaint handled? How was it addressed? How was the problem solved? Served? Solved rather? Well, it has to do with this whole sermon series, and we can answer it in one word: discernment. It was handled using discernment. And as we've considered the accounts that are recorded for us in Acts, we first have to discern if what is recorded for us is time-bound, it only has application to that time, or if it has some type of lasting or eternal value or application that serves to inform us and our walk today. And in previous messages, these have been labeled as descriptive, those things that are described for us and are bound to the time or the situation, and things that are normative, things then that we can use to inform our actions and our interactions, inform our walk. Now, I'm pretty sure that what we have recorded for us in the first seven verses of Acts 6 is something that's important because we use it. We use it to describe the office of deacon and how deacons are called and how they serve. So, let's take a closer look. The first couple of verses of Acts 6. This complaint was filed. How does the leadership respond? Well, it's rather obvious that before they take it to the whole body, the leadership, the twelve, the apostles, talked with one another. They discussed it. I would imagine, it doesn't say this, but I would imagine that they also prayed about it and that they also uh, thought about, well, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus have handled this or responded to this? They didn't read their New Testaments because they didn't have them. So they had to rely on their experiences, their memory, prayer, and the Holy Spirit so they discerned a response. And then it says, still in verse 2, that the twelve went to the full number of the disciples and shared with them what they had discerned, namely that instead of dividing their time between preaching the Word of God and manning a table for the daily distribution of funds, they should focus on preaching the Word of God they're going to focus on that as their primary responsibility. And remember, the reason for this, the reason for this problem occurring is because they're growing. The church is growing in number. And then we look at verses 3 and 4. And then they told the others what to do, right? Well, not exactly. They delegated the solving of the problem. Well, sort of, kind of, they did that. You see, they gave them some direction. This is what they say. Pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The other disciples, the full church now, was given the task of selecting these people. And they had total freedom to pick whoever they felt fit this job description as given to them by the twelve apostles. But the twelve aren't off the hook. You see, they are going to be the ones who really do the appointing of these deacons. And then if we look at verses 5 and 6, and you know, this is just the beginning of verse 5. I really love the the beginning of verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That just makes you feel good, doesn't it? It was received well. You know, when we hear that phrase, we think of also the phrase, of one accord, that they were all of one mind or one accord. And and that's really when we get the closest to Jesus' prayer for us. The prayer that he prayed in the upper room, you know, is found in, in John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one, talking about us, that they may be one just as you and I are one. There's no visible separation between God and the Father. That's how close Jesus is praying for us to become. And in this prayer in John 17, he mentions this becoming perfectly one three times. And we know that if it's repeated, it must be important. Being of one accord and one of mind is how we will know, how the world will know, rather, that Jesus was really sent from God. That's going to be the evidence. The evidence is our unity with one another. The fact that we are of one accord. Acts 4 says all the believers were united in heart and mind. So everyone was pleased. Everyone is pleased and they, they chose the seven men to manage the distribution to the widows. Now we don't know exactly how these first deacons were chosen, but there's no mention of voting, none at all. To fit the criteria provided by the 12 disciples, they, those chosen had to be of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And they came up with, you know, seven people, seven names: Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Lucanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. You notice anything about those names? Yeah, they're all Greek. They're all Greek, every one of them. I wonder why. You know, I believe it was an act of love, (laughs) especially on behalf of the Hebrew Christians. How would we have handled this today? I've thought about this. And you know how I think we would have handled it? We're supposed to pick seven, right? Okay, so let's pick... Three Hellenists, three Hebrews, and then some neutral Gentile. That would be fair, right? That's a fair way to do it. But that's not what they did. They completely shifted it over to the Hellenists. All seven are Greeks. And I think that was an act of love. I think that was totally an act of love. And I had to make the Hellenists very happy, you know, don't you think? I mean, that would have validated the complaint. Oh, they heard us. And we're we're getting this, all these people to, to do what needs to be done. And what did the Hebrews do? They dropped the rope. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. You know, we really don't know how this problem occurred or what exactly were the issues. We don't know if it was deliberate for some reason. We don't know if it was accidental. But the Hellenists felt that their widows were being overlooked. They were being slighted, neglected, the Scripture says. And whether it was deliberate or not doesn't matter. It was their perception. That's how they felt. Now, how do we usually respond to criticism. We get defensive. We get defensive. You see, we pick up the other end of that rope, and we give it a tug. We give it just a little bit of a yank. And then all too often, unfortunately, a tug of war ensues. The last superintendent that I worked for at Springford had a saying, Drop the rope. You know, it so often happens in a school district, you know, there's a tug-of-war. It could be a tug-of-war between a teacher and a student, between a teacher and a parent, between a principal and a parent, or a principal and a teacher, or a principal and a school board member. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we were challenged to ask first What are you fighting for? And secondly, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the fight going to do more harm than good? Do we really want to be on separate teams pulling against each other, or do we want to be on the same team pulling together? Drop the rope. You know, I really think that that this is what happened here in this daily distribution to the widows. The Hebrews dropped the ropes. They just relinquished control. And they gave complete control up. And they gave it to the Hellenists. But they also picked good people, people of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And then in Acts, it also says that, in verse 6, that the twelve prayed over them, they were installed, and they laid hands on them. And what's the purpose of laying hands on? Well, it communicates a blessing, and it also symbolizes authority. You know, the twelve were blessing these deacons, these newly appointed deacons, and they were conveying authority to them to do their job, to do their assigned task. And this, friends, is how it's supposed. To work. This is how it's supposed to go. And there are several lessons that we can learn from this account that we have for us in, in Acts 6. First, the, the problem that the Hellenists brought to the 12 was not seen as insignificant. It was heard, it was addressed, and therefore it was dignified. Next, the 12 took the time to discern and to achieve unity. And that unity was communicated to the rest of the disciples, the church, and everyone was pleased. And, you know, I really believe that the unity that was shown by the Twelve motivated the rest of the church. It inspired the rest of the church to maintain and, and demonstrate that same type of unity and to also act with one accord. And as a result, they came up with seven names that were not just fair, but that demonstrated love demonstrated love. And this passage, along with others, serves to inform us regarding elders and deacons. You know, from this and, and other passages, we learn that the same requirements are in place to select both elders and deacons. There is no difference. The main difference is that elders are primi- primarily concerned with things of a spiritual nature, and deacons are primarily concerned with things of a material or service nature, and there's delineation between those two, but that's the primary focus. So, how should the body, the church, make decisions? Well, I think we can use this passage as a guide. You know, the main thing that we notice is the, that the body was all of one accord, and that's the goal. It's a goal of achieving unity of mind and purpose. And we noticed that the problem was taken to the 12, the the elders, as it were, And, and we also noticed that the whole body was involved in arriving at the solution, and then in carrying out the solution, too. And I believe that that is what Parker Ford Church is moving toward, but it has been a shift for us, and it hasn't been an easy shift, because that's not how we've always done it. That is not how it has been in the past, and in, in fact, it's not how most churches function. Following 500 years ago following the Protestant Reformation. You see, the Reformation is, was in response to corruption that was present at that time in the Catholic Church. And a small group of church leader, leaders were dictating the beliefs and practices of the church in those days. And one of the ideas that came out of the Reformation was that individual congregations should have some level of control. And some some movements, who also have their roots in the Reformation, took that idea even further and further until congregations had total control. And one of those was the Church of the Brethren, of which we are a part. And the idea of a church council meeting was embraced and as that evolved over time, voting and majority rule came into being. And, and what that did, at least in my opinion, was that unity was no longer as important, you see. Because it didn't have to be as important. It wasn't necessary for the whole body to be of one mind. You only needed a majority. Majority. And that cheapens the whole idea of unity, when all you need is a majority. The body's no longer with the common good, achieving unity, and instead, people just express their personal preferences. And voting allows one to do that, sometimes even anonymously. And then in the 1960s, the office, the office of elder was completely eliminated in the Church of the Brethren, and it was, it was changed into the office of moderator. And the moderator was known as the official head of the corporation. You know, it was almost like we were having a church CEO, is what it really sounds like. Now, the Church of the Brethren is a restorationist church, and, and that we really want to look to that first century church. We want to restore what we find in Acts. That's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to be faithful to the New Testament, trying to be faithful to the New Testament church and make decisions in a similar way. So we've make, we're making, I should say we're making this shift from a congregationally run church to an elder-led church. And this has not been, as I said earlier, without its difficulties. People were afraid that they were going to lose their voice. But notice in the situation recorded for us in our text for today that everybody had a voice. And those voices were heard. Those voices were not lost. The Hellenists were heard, the problem was addressed, and it was addressed to their satisfaction. The elders have committed themselves to spending a significant amount of time discerning. And how do you do that? Well, we talked about it in the children's message. You spend time in prayer. You spend time reading the Bible. You spend time with each other, prayerfully discussing it. And while the elders have made that a primary focus of of what they do, we are all called to spend time in discernment. And if more of us did just that, first of all, there'd be less problems, less difficulties. And secondly, many of the problems that do arise would be handled by that discerning spirit by that being of one accord also. It wouldn't even get to the elders. If there's one thing that I would like us to remember from this passage, it is that discernment in the body is not about expressing our personal preferences or opinions. Discernment is trying to figure out what's right, what God wants us to do, and what will benefit the whole body. We can still have those personal opinions and preferences, but we have to communicate them in light of what's best for the body. Discernment is all about discovering God's will and achieving unity. It is not what is what. uh, It's not telling everybody, well, what's this is what's best for me. Instead, it's making a sincere attempt to discover what is best for us all. And you know, as I was driving over here this morning, I thought, you know, it's best captured by a verse in Romans. Romans 12:2. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this situation so many years ago. We thank you that it was recorded for us and we're able to get a glimpse of what it was like for the body to make decisions to handle situations and difficulties. We thank you that those early Christians were of one mind and one accord. And you know, we pray for that for us. We pray that you would unite us in heart and mind and purpose. We pray that we would also, through the working of your Holy Spirit, be able to discern what is best for the body, what is best for the kingdom, and what meets and joins with you in carrying out the work that you're doing here in our world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something else that we need to discern for today. As we approach the bread and cup of communion, Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks... Without discerning, it says. Without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what do those verses mean? Well, unfortunately, all too often we have used those verses uh, to exclude others or ourselves from coming to the table to receive the bread and the cup. And that's not their intention. You see, Everyone, all baptized Christians, are invited to receive these symbols of the body and the blood of our Savior. But we are to take these symbols and this act of communion seriously. We are not to enter into it lightly or unadvisedly. But we may have some unfinished business to attend to then before we have these symbols, before we commune. Perhaps we need to confess some sin. Perhaps we need to forgive. Or maybe we just need to get our heads on straight. So let's take a moment to do just that in a moment of silence as we bow our heads. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Fill us, we pray, with your Spirit so that we might fully realize the meaning and the significance of the sacrifice you have made on our behalf. Forgive us for those times when we have departed from your will. Through the working of your Holy Spirit, impress upon us the price that was paid for love that was so freely offered for us. Amen. Paul also wrote, and I'll invite the deacons to come forward who are serving this morning. Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The praise team is going to continue to play as we commune. And you're invited, as you feel led, to come forward using the inner aisles. And then going back to your seat by the outer aisles. If you're visiting, if you commune in your your home church, you're certainly welcome to commune with us here this morning. All who are in love and fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, who do truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who humbly put your trust in Christ and desire his help that you may lead a holy life, draw nigh to God, and receive these sacred emblems to your comfort through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.